Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Please welcome back a second time to the podcast, Jem the Duke. And last time we spoke about the two-parter on the Ottoman Sultans, because they wrote this book, The Sultans, about the Ottoman history. And this time, it's a very special reason why we have two episodes this week. And we will release this episode on Saturday, which is a very special date for the history of Turkey. So tell us why we are releasing this episode on on a Saturday. Well, and thank you very much for having me on again. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to have fun again, I hope. Uh, but yes, the answer to your question is on Saturday, it marks the technically the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Republic of Turkey. It is Turkey's birthday. That's right. 100 is quite a milestone. And um, you know, let's, let's talk, we're going to talk from, you know, the creation of Kuwait at the fall of Abdullah II until the creation with Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal. But we won't talk about Mustafa Kemal just yet because I want to begin with, of course, and it says, I feel like it's essential to understand because it was a government before Kemal came to power, which was called the Kuwait government. And I hope I said it's right this time. Uh, but we have to give a little background to how and why they came to power. And Abdullah II's reign is significant to this. Yes. So, I mean, it's a big conversation because if you think about it, the way millions of people had been governed was founded about in in about the year 1300. So we're talking about the time of the Crusades. Uh, We're talking about before the Black Death. And so there had been this colossal period of stability, which, which you know, we can argue as it uh, evolved, turned into eventually fossilization and sort of like a reductionist way of ruling. But there were people, who, there were millions of people who, as far as they were aware, this area always had been ruled by the Ottoman Empire and always will be ruled by the Ottoman Empire. And so I, I think a good place to start, uh, as I talk about in the book, is the concept of nationalism, which so many people misunderstand. Today, nationalism is a really important part of identity. And uh, what's interesting is it's not as old as people think it is. So, for example, England, the, the country of England, has been around for more than a thousand years. But Let's take it to the year 1300 uh, in England. So if I'm your average peasant, let's say I'm living uh, just outside of the town of Oxford in England, in southern England. Well, the you capital would, city... Yeah, you wouldn't identify yourself as British. You would identify yourself as you're from Oxford, and that's it for you. Exactly, for exactly. Oh, you use the word British there. I mean, that's a very modern I mean, English. Term, you know? English. So, so yeah. Engl- even English would be an alien concept, as you said, because... 
to, to give you an idea, it, although Oxford is not that far away from London, I can I can do it in maybe an hour and a half from my home. But the, the reality is, you know, back in the Middle Ages, it would have taken two days to walk to London. So I am unlikely to have ever been to London. And so I don't have anything in common with people in the north of England or the south of England or whatever. So it's just I was my whole world was my little my little village. And going to Oxford was probably the biggest thing I ever did. Somebody estimated that in the Middle Ages in Europe, you uh, your average peasant never uh, ventured more than 20 miles away from their home. So, so your whole world was just a 20 mile radius around your home. And that was it. So because of that, the, the, they were aware that they had a king. Uh, but another thing to think about in, let's say, the year 1300 is um, the, the king, the king of England was Edward I. And he was the first king of England since 1066, the invasion of England by William the Conqueror. He was the first English king to have English as his first language, but he could still speak French. So this, you know, this connection between France and England was very much there in 1300. I know we're here to talk about the Ottomans, but this is just the average thing. The people did not think of the bigger picture for a very, very long time. So the first people to start writing about nationalism as a concept were various political philosophers in the 1600s, but it didn't really start to make a big difference to geopolitics until we're into the 1700s and pretty much the first time you can point to it going that that concept made a difference was half of the british uh, north american colonies decide to create their new country called america but it, you know people talk about there were the 13 colonies but the reality is there were 26 colonies including places like the uh, west indies uh, islands who decided half of them decided to stay part of britain and uh, places like canada as well but only half of them decided to create their own country then about uh, 10 years after that we get the french revolution so once we're moving into the 1800s we are starting to see the rise of these nationalistic movements. And the first one to really affect the Ottoman Empire was in the early 1800s. And that's where we get Greek nationals, Greek nationalists talking about national independence, which of course was a lie. The last time Greece had been independent was under the Byzantine Empire. So it was part of a previous empire. And prior to that, if we go before the Roman Empire, there was no such place as Greece. There were these various city-states that spoke the same language, had the same religions, but they had different political systems. And indeed, they they fought, went to war with each other. Sparta and Athens were not friends of each other. So this idea of Greek nationalism is the starting point of what goes wrong with the Ottoman Empire, because on the one hand, they've got a part of their empire that had been part of their empire for 400 years. Uh, in, you know, Millions of Greek citizens had served in the Ottoman army, in the Ottoman administration. Lots so of people Barbarossa have made their money there. Origin as well, Say again? And Barbarossa, the pirate, and of great origin as well. Well, we, I think the current consensus is possibly Albanian. But yeah, the, the point is, that the and, and we're going to come on to this point, the idea of Turkishness has been very much hijacked by by the Ottoman independence groups, the Muslim ones in the late 19th, early 20th century, where... Turkic as an ethnic identity, well, the original Osman, another way of, of translating it is Ottoman, hence the term Ottoman Empire, he was Turkic. He was a Seljuk Turk. He would have been ethnically similar to somebody like Tamerlane or Genghis Khan. 
but uh, absolutely, all you have to do is walk around Istanbul and realize these people are not clearly Mongols. Um, so they they turned an ethnic identity into a political identity, but that was part of the reaction to things like Greek national independence. Because the great thing for the Greek perspective is they were Greek Orthodox, so they had a religion to unify them. They had a general understanding of a similar history behind them, and they had a language that that unified them. But the thing is, when, when there was a successful Greek war of independence in the early 1800s, it is worth remembering about half of modern Greece uh, became independent from the Ottoman Empire. So by no means, all of Greece was now uh, its own separate country. And it is also worth remembering to again show you how complicated this was. Towards the end of the war against the Ottomans, they started having a civil war because they couldn't decide who was actually going to run this new country. I'm going to say that's a little early. Win the war of independence first and then have a civil war. Don't do it at the same time. That seems inefficient to me. Then I thought about, of course, we one of the main reasons are reported because Abdullah II would be the last autocratic uh, sultan in the Ottoman Empire. And, and let's talk a little bit about his reign because we, I feel like we have to understand this yes. in order to understand the coup institution, which we are going to get back to as well. Exactly. Uh, how yes. and why they came to power. Because, and, and I want to give a little bit of background as well. I believe his predecessor, I'm not, I don't remember who it was, but he, he did create the uh, Constitution for Ottomans, which of course Abdullah II abolished almost immediately as he became to power. Yes. So the the thing is that you know, so the Ottoman empires, I think the Ottoman sultans, I should say, some particularly the later ones get a bit of a bad rap because by then the Ottoman empires referred to by Europe as the sick man of Europe. Clearly, it's past its prime, but it's still fighting wars and conducting some of them very successfully. And um, if I may, may add to the Sigman of Europe, which of course was coined by Nicholas I when he was sort of a Tsar of Russia, but that, to, to be fair, not many other, many other empires at the time were really much, pretty much the Sigman of Europe as well. It wasn't, well, wasn't much worse living in, let's say, Austria or especially Russia, maybe at this time, than it was living. In the Ottoman Empire, absolutely, and of course, the irony is, uh, as you said, it was the it was the expansionist Romanov um, uh, Russian dynasty that that coined this term. The Ottoman Empire lasted longer than the Romanovs. You know, they, they were propping and shot. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't by much, but it, you know, as you say. It's well. I mean, your com- your enemies are never going to compliment you. They're not going to be called the strong man of Europe. Um, but yeah, Russia had its own problems. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had its own problems. And then if you go further east, you know, the Chinese Empire was also on the brink of collapse. So there were all these empires that have been around for a long time that just simply the the, the credit to the Ottoman Empire and Abdulhamid II is he was actually trying to come up with some solutions. Now the problem was he comes from a completely autocratic back. Background and the idea of giving any power to a to a prime minister or, or to some kind of parliament is the opposite of what a sultan wants to do. There were and so yeah, as you said, there were the, some dabblings into it. There were some attempts, but they were all abortive attempts. They weren't perfect solutions, and it's one of these great counterfactuals. What if they got it right? But I'm going to argue, and and sort of like when I was writing the book and looking back at it, I I describe nationalism as a cancer. 
in any empire as soon as i mean so when you're talking about the mongol empire in the 1200s because nationalism wasn't a thing it's just like okay the the mongols are the biggest scariest power at the moment fine we're all mongol vassals we just pay our taxes to the mongols and nobody argues against that but fundamentally when people start saying the ottomans are alien to our way of culture our nation then it almost doesn't matter what uh, what governmental systems like the Kuhl, as you as you said, and any of the other systems that were tried and aborted or half implemented in a way they were trying to put a sticking plaster over a gaping wound and it was never really going to to fix the problem. But they were trying. They There were s- some options coming up. The, the Janissaries, obviously, in the 1800s, that had been the way the Ottoman Empire had been fighting for centuries they were deposed and and a more regular um, a more regular army was brought in they a lot of german military and prussian military discipline was brought in they were trying to make their army a more european army rather than this very anachronistic uh, um, system that had worked beautifully 200 years earlier but things had moved on you know there were now telephones radios and steam trains and the era of, beginning of, of, of motor cars, maybe we should stop fighting wars the way we did in the Middle Ages. And I want to talk about an uh, alliance with that Ottoman state with the Germans. And uh, as we pointed out this before, when I made my episode with Eugene Rodin, Rodin a while, while ago, we pointed out that, you know, when the British and English, they didn't want them because, you know, they were only interested in property, to so to speak, for the lack of better words, in the Middle East that the Ottomans owned. And, you know, it makes sense that if you, let's say you were my neighbor and you were interested in my house, I wouldn't align myself with you, would I? Because, you know, you were interested in taking my things, so that, that alliance wouldn't make sense. But let's say my neighbor Greg on the other side of the street, he would be was not interested in my areas pro, uh, areas at all or my house, so I would align myself with Greg because, you know, he had no interest in my area, and that's why that's partly, to use this metaphor, that's partly how the German alliance came about, because, you know, Germany didn't really have any interest in the Middle East. Oh, Absolutely, I think that's a great summary. And, and reinforcing your point there if we go back a little bit further mm-hmm. you get the swedish empire and the ottoman empire being allies and if you look on the map it's like they're not even close to each other but that's the beauty they're never going to rub up against each other but between them there's this big aggressive expansionist russian empire which both sweden and the ottoman empire wanted to contain so yeah i i, I absolutely agree i think the only thing i would add to that is being a little bit cynical, uh, the German Empire was the only empire that hadn't interfered. As you said, there was no interest, um, but even something like the Italians, uh, just a few years before, so mm-hmm. literally the year before uh, World War One, there are the Balkan Wars. There are actually two Balkan Wars, which the major powers get involved in. But just a couple of years before that, so we're talking about 1911, 1912, Italy is fighting in North Africa and trying to sort of grab um, Ottoman lands there as well. So not even the, let's face it, not very effective Italian empire of the 20th century, even they, the the Ottomans couldn't go to because they'd recently, very recently had a fight with them, had an engagement with them. Indeed, Mustafa Kemal, uh, later Ataturk, was one of the serving officers in that war. Uh, and this completely forgotten war, the, the Italian-Ottoman war, is actually the very first occasion 
aerial bombardment happened. It was done by an Italian. It was only a few years after the invention of the aircraft, and an Italian wrote in his diary that any aircraft at that time were used as spotter planes, but he said that he was going to take some hand grenades onto the next aircraft, and he was going to drop them on some of the Berber horsemen. Uh, We don't know how the mission went, but that's the first ever reference of an aerial attack uh, from, again, a completely forgotten um, uh, conflict. So, you know, all of this is swirling around uh, various groups had sort of started to sort of carve themselves away uh you you mentioned france so lebanon was uh became semi-independent and basically became part of uh the french interests in in the middle east and so what was happening is i know a lot of people and a lot of listeners will be aware of the movement called the young turks they were actually originally started as the young Ottomans. And indeed, both the young Ottomans, which were a a group of young officers who were trying to come up with major changes to the Ottoman system of governance. Um, But the one thing they agreed with the uh, the Sublime Port, as the name of the the Ottomans uh, Sultan's um, government was called, what they both agreed on is that when you've got the Armenians breaking away because of Christianity, and you got the Greeks using Greek Orthodox Christianity and their language. The argument began to be that if you're a Muslim, you should stick with the Ottoman Empire because we're the only ones who have a seat at the table that get noticed by the other major powers. So that if you are, hey, Syria, which was an ancient nation of itself, the area of Syria is mentioned in things like the Roman Empire. So it goes back thousands of years. Yeah, um, the Germanists, I believe, was Syrian as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so the point is that somewhere like Syria has a history of being independent to the Ottoman Empire. But hey, Syria, because you're Muslim, maybe you should stick with this capital city that's actually in Europe. This is the other thing that people forget. The you know it is referred to as a sick man of Europe, but the Ottoman sultans saw themselves as European and indeed ruled vast swathes of Eastern Europe. Now, by the start of the 20th century, a lot of that had gone. But even when you get to the Balkan War, you've got countries like Serbia and Greece and Bulgaria fighting against the Ottoman Empire and not doing very well. Um, You know, the Ottoman Empire, you know, worked quite effectively, even as late as this period. Part of that was to do with, um, you know, uh, really decisive generals such as uh, Mustafa Kemal. But also it does show you, uh, again, the Prussian training. You're starting to get Krupp um, uh, Krupp weaponry and artillery. So, you know, these aren't guys running around in their silks firing composite bows as the Ottomans did, you know, 500 years earlier. They had moved with the times, but they are still a military and political concern in Europe just at the eve of World War One. So, listen, before we go to World War One, we have to talk. Yes, I, I figured but you'd want to talk more. You're doing a little bit ahead, but, you know, yeah, yeah. it's okay. We, we're going to talk about the, the position of Ottoman. Of Abdelhamid II, and of course the two government, because as far as I'm, I'm concerned, as far as I know, they did all they really wanted to do then was just re, as we mentioned, Abdelhamid abolished the constitution when he came to power, which was created yep. by his predecessors. And that's what the two government wanted to do. They wanted to restate this constitution, but they didn't really have any plans, as far as I know, other than just reinstate institute the constitution and they were like what now what's next they did what we wanted to do now 
what do we do now kind of thing, as far as I understand. Oh, absolutely. Now, the thing about um, Abdul Hamid II is you could see him as the last proper sultan. Now, he wasn't. You know, there was still Mehmet V and Mehmet VI to come. But the thing is, when we talk about the Ottoman Empire, well, in, in Britain, well, it's a dynasty. But in Britain, we might talk about the Tudor uh, the Tudor dynasty, or in France, you might be talking about the Capetian dynasty. And these were the same family, maybe not literally father, son, but, you know, daughters might be in there as well, uncles, etc. But it's the same broader family ruling a country. And it's accurate to call the Ottoman Empire the Ottoman Empire, because literally, you can draw a line all the way from the last Sultan Mehmet VI, all the way back to Osman in 1300. You know, it. and what's fascinating is there were uprising and revolts earlier in the story of the Ottoman Empire. But it just never seemed to occur to anybody. Oh, you know, whereas in the French Revolution, they chopped the head off the king and then later the queen. But they never did that in the Ottoman Empire. You know, again, we are talking the, the end, the tail end of the Ottoman Empire is the same as the Roman Empire, which uh, sorry, not Roman Empire, Russian Empire, which again, as as we just said, the you know, the Russian, the last Romanovs were were executed by firing squad. Nobody did this to the to the Ottomans. And so you get the three passions. So in my book called The Sultans, I point out how 90% of the book, you can legitimately say the Sultans were running the show. Whereas if you compare it to somewhere like Britain, once you get the uh, Civil War in the mid-1600s, um, and you then get a republic for a couple of decades. Once you do get a return to a king with King Charles II, he just doesn't have the power of his father. By then, the, the prime minister, and, well, not actually the prime minister, but the, the parliament is more important to running the country than the king. And over the centuries after that, parliament only gets more and more powerful. So if you like, there was never a need for a revolution. There was never a need for executions. It was a slow, gradual decline of power. It didn't really happen with the Ottomans by comparison. You know, he, Abdul Hamid II was, was desperately trying to cling on to power. He was coming, trying to come up. The problem was he was trying to come up with compromises while he was still had absolute power. And that can't fit. If you're genuinely going to have a change, of of process you're going to have to give away some of your power but who does that reasonably so you get a coup you get uh the three pashas as they're called and so when people point the finger at um you know atrocities and errors and disasters around uh the ottoman empire and world war one while they have a point it is worth remembering the sultan at that point was just the figurehead and actually it's the three pashas you have to put point the finger to and indeed it's worth pointing out that you know uh, atrocities happened in, in armenia during uh, world war 1 and shortly after but the armenians sent hit squads assassination teams to hunt down these three pashas and they absolutely hit, found their mark and killed the three pashas so they are they're a conversation about how the conduct of World War I happened, and indeed the Balkan Wars, but they are not a conversation about the foundation of the Republic of Turkey, because by then they're either on the run or dead. Let's, you know, you mentioned the Armenian hunt, but personally, I think that sounds kind of like it would be an epic movie. The Armenian is something down these three fascists. It sounds like it wouldn't be 
an epic movie all all about you know the white earth when he had them down those yeah 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 Royale, it could be something like that something like this you know it really sounds like it could be a great movie out of this but that's Absolutely. Totally- well, you could argue that it would be so you, you just got me thinking but um uh you've got uh the movie munich which after the after the um, terrorist attacks uh, carried out by the PLO against the Israelis in the Munich Olympics, then the Israelis send assassination hit squads to kill everybody involved with that that operation. Uh, you could pretty much do the same story with the with the Armenians. Um, that would work quite well as a structure. But with that, with the rail, the rail, but let's talk a bit, a little bit about before we go to World War One about the three parties sure. the in the, and what went wrong with them in the power because we mentioned the Armenians, but let's talk a little bit about the, them in power. Yeah, so uh, you have the problem that while they've managed to grab the levers of government, of course the government isn't set up for them. And they were, uh, and I guess a bit like Abdul Hamid II, yes, they had introduced new systems, but they didn't want to give away any power. At least they had to share it between the three of them. But you, I mean, so uh, an example of one of the symbols of change that actually we see as tradition of the Ottoman Empire, this is a bit, a bit of fun before we get too heavy, is the Fez. That that uh, that hat, which has the little bit of uh, fabric hanging off it, the tassel hanging off it, and it's actually based on the French kepi, and it was um, it, it was a French kepi has has a rim to it. This deliberately doesn't have a rim because a a Muslim when they pray has to press press their forehead to the ground, so they can't have a rim. So they basically ripped off the rim, added a little of the tassel. And that was introduced in the 1800s. It was a way to show a symbol of like, we are different to the West. We are a Muslim nation or a Muslim empire, I should say. However, if you look back a uh, hundred years earlier and for like, let's say 85% of the Ottoman history, you would wear a turban. A turban is what a good Muslim would wear. So a sign of modernization is we're moving to the Fez. And yet, if you ask your average European, oh, yeah, the Fez is an Ottoman headgear. They had it for centuries. In the end, they had it for less than 100 years, actually. Um, But what's interesting is because by the early 20th century, it was so associated with the Ottoman Empire that when we do get the foundation of the Republic of Turkey, one of the things that becomes a a banned piece of, of, of clothing is the fez you're simply not allowed to wear it indeed in theory if you were to wear a fez you would be executed i couldn't find any actual cases of people being executed let's face it a hat is not worth dying for people just moved over to like skull caps or or trilbies or whatever um you know it, it went away pretty quickly but today you can go to istanbul and you can buy a fez uh, don't worry nobody's going to kill you for wearing a fez they're, they're ha- more than happy to sell them to tourists but this is if you like that's a physical example of how the ottoman empire is trying to change but they're not trying to change enough and um it's a sort of half measure and generally whenever you see in history or in life half measures don't work um but let's talk about world war one and the, because as, and again i'm referring to the episode with the uh, eugene rogan that very really spoke about and they did have some good wars they did 
be it the British crowd that quite a lot when and Gallipoli of course is most famous on the Ottoman side and they did fight some good wars as we discussed in that episode because they did, they weren't incompetent clearly and no absolutely not produce, of course Mustafa Kemal at this point we've mentioned him before but let's introduce him properly at, right now indeed well so just as uh, I I um I can't remember if uh, you covered it in that episode but the actual trigger because it's again really interesting showing the relationship western europe had with the ottoman empire at the start of world war 1 because what happened was um britain was about to finish two warships for um uh for the uh for the ottoman empire but just as world war 1 was breaking out and they were ready to deliver them uh the uh it was winston churchill in the admiralty said uh, in essence he said to paraphrase it's like we don't know if they're going to be on whose side so let's not give them some warships then so they basically said you know they were ready to be delivered the ottoman government had paid for them and then the british didn't deliver them so that doesn't make the british look particularly good however we can understand that that was probably a smart move at the beginning of the war but it's one of these triggers so what happened was the germans went oh well you you can have two of our ships and so they sent these two warships that were chased across the mediterranean by the royal navy but as soon as they went into uh the port in istanbul uh, they had exactly the same crew. They were all given fezes. So these Germans were given fezes. They they raised the flag of the Ottoman Empire. And then they went into the Black Sea and they started attacking the Roman. Sorry, I keep saying Roman. The Russian Empire, some of the Russian ports. And to begin with, they thought, uh, you know, the, if you look at the British reports, there was still a confusion over this. Like, did they mean to do it? Are they actually attacking Russia? Is this the Germans? Is this the Ottomans? As the Ottoman uh, Empire declared on the side of Germany. So you've got weeks of confusion. And if you like, I think that's a great way of showing how ambiguous the relationship was. People weren't, you know, if you asked French, France and Britain, who were you fighting against? The answer was we're fighting against the Germans. Now that excludes the Austro-Hungarians and it excludes the Ottomans, but actually you have three empires on one side fighting three other empires on the other side Then later on America joins. And so once, as, as you said, quite rightly, the, the perhaps the most audacious thing that didn't actually work for the Ottomans is using uh, sort of German mm-hmm. leadership they managed to go all the way to the Suez Canal. They wanted to cut off the the uh, British from their Asian um, colonies, and so they 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 marched all the way through Gaza, and they did a brilliant job. You know, marching and um, not just Gaza, but then on into the Sinai Peninsula. This was a genuinely impressive feat. However airplanes had been invented if they did this 10 years earlier it would have worked but british airplanes spotted the oncoming ottoman forces and then they were ready for them now actually some of the ottoman forces did manage to make it across a small amount across the suez canal but it was pretty vicious fighting for several days uh, the british did under, end up winning but uh, a sign of british incompetence when the when the Ottoman forces were forced to move back across all these deserts, that would have been the perfect time to attack them. Um, you know, they, they, it would be very hard to defend in a, in a desert, but the British did not follow up their their uh, successful defense with an attack. And that led to three 
uh, battles around Gaza. That happened much later in the war, but it does show you, as you said, the Ottomans didn't just collapse. So they had their success at Gallipoli. And that really, and it, and it is worth remembering, there were more British and French forces there than there were the, uh, the famous Anzacs, the Australian New Zealanders. But, you know, that was absolutely a defensive victory and a complete disaster for Britain and France. Um, and uh, the three battles in in Gaza. You also have the, the British force surrounded in Kut in modern day Iraq, um, and that was an absolute disaster. Thousands of British troops were prisoners of war. So the you know the Ottomans didn't go down. You know they they just didn't collapse like a house of cards as everybody thought they would. And actually, they acquitted themselves. You know, the British, they thought that, oh, they're going to, like you said, they're going to collapse pretty fast. But they, and they are hoping to, you know, demoralize the Ottomans uh, from, you know, collapsing. But they really hold on until just months, be- few months before Germany itself collapsed. And before, they yes. just hold on pretty good to say all things considered about the opposite of what the British believed. You know, because it was just a few months before the Germans surrendered, that the Ottomans surrendered as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the uh, there was the idea from the Germans that they would be able to use the Ottoman Sultan. I mean, so this is again showing you, um, you know, the connection between the ancient world and the modern world. So we're talking about an era where radios are happening, and yet they they are hoping that the Ottoman Sultan can declare a jihad. So that all Muslims, good Muslims, will listen to him and rise up, which would have caused, if that had worked, it would have caused huge problems for British colonial uh, forces in places like India. At that time, India included Bangladesh and Pakistan. There were literally tens of millions of Muslims in India. That would have been impossible to sort of like stop a, some sort of revolt there. Uh, also places like Indonesia and um uh, and Malaya, Malaya as well, uh, which is modern day Malaysia and Singapore. So all of this would have been seriously problematic for the British. It just didn't work. In the end, I believe there was uh, a group of about 20 guys who, who revolted in uh, somewhere in Malaya and, you know, the, the local police handled it. But you can see how the Germans are trying to open up other fronts. Um, and I guess in a different life, that might have worked and could have caused serious problems for the British and might have rewritten World War One. Um, but as it was, yeah, it, while the war was going on, you have France and Britain carving up the Middle East. You got things like the Sykes Picot Agreement. Uh, you got the Treaty of Sevres, which was, you know, everyone talks about the Versailles Treaty. Exactly, exactly. Everyone talks about the, you know, Treaty of Versailles. That didn't include the Ottoman Empire. That that happened at the Treaty of Sevres, and and so, you know, uh, you get the three pashas doing a coup, catch, you know, capturing the government. Suddenly they are the face of the Ottoman Empire and the Sultan is is a figurehead, but they then lose a war. And then we start seeing the dismantling. So at that point, the Ottoman subjects have this very strange relationship because they can't actually blame the Sultan for the defeat because the three Pashas were everywhere saying, oh yeah, we're great, we're running the show. So that's a real problem. And therefore... After the Treaty of Sèvres, you you then still have Mehmet the Sixth. You know who he, he was. Um, he became Ottoman Sultan just at the end of World War One, um, but he's still Sultan sitting there. 
as the Ottoman Empire is being dismantled. And, you know, it's, yeah, he has to send people to the treaty, you know, over to France to, to negotiate on his behalf. It is interesting. He actually became sultan in uh, the summer of 1918. But in 1917, he went on a tour in, to Germany to basically see military, um, you know, military protocols and equipment. And his attaché was Mustafa Kemal because he was a successful Ottoman general. Why would you not have him with you? And yet you've got the founder of a republic going with an Ottoman sultan uh, to... Uh, a, a separate country. I mean, he wasn't the Ottoman Sultan at that time, but that just shows you how complicated, how the relationship between these different sides had to evolve and change over a very short period of time. And it's interesting because, you know, in Europe, at least, you know, the autocratic rulers were pretty much gone after World War yep. I. William, William II abdicating, you have the I don't remember his name, but it's the last Austro-Hungarian emperor abdicating the Romanov, killed by the Bolsheviks. But still, the Sultan was still, though as a constitutional monarch, perhaps that's what saved him, but still he held on to power somewhat until 1920, 1921. And, and that's well, it wasn't actually something. abolished until 22. That, that's, yeah. so, I mean, this is the thing, as I say in the book, it's like, when do you actually want to finish the Ottoman Empire, you got about four different dates over like four a four year period. Um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. And you know, it I've heard some people, and I like this. This is a bit of poetry in history. I've heard some people describe World War One should actually be called the end of empires, because you get the end of the German Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Sounds good to me. I mean, I'll, I'll if you want to call it that, that's fair, because it does completely completely change um the geopolitical um you know power base and and systems across uh, you know huge areas of, of planet earth and we, we've talked a little bit about it but i was i've been going a little bit back and forth i feel like but still i feel like it's important that we mention talk a little bit about the career of mustafa kemal up at, up to oh, the, absolutely they understand how he came to power and would be and become the president the first president of new turkish republic yeah, so he, he, I'm going to put this out here. When people talk about has there been such a thing as a benevolent dictator, I think there have been a few good arguments for it. Charles II of, of, of England, for example, or Britain. Um, and then I would say uh, Mustafa Kemal, who uh, I am now going to say, uh, I'm, I'm now going to call him Ataturk. Um, so, you know, this becomes his name. And I, I think a lot of people on the podcast will, will know of, of Ataturk. And so... You know, he was a man who, I mean, so this shows you how complicated it was. His house where he was born is now a museum. And that is in the modern country of Greece. Hmm. Greece has permanent guards around it because Greece cannot afford to have Ataturk's house burnt down by an angry Greek guy because that will lead to war with with Turkey and Turkey will win. Um, so, but that shows you. And so, it shows you how much Ataturk had to invent things on the go. You know, today we would call him Greek. He was born and raised in the country of Greece. Why would we not call him Greek? But to any Turk hearing this 
would be appalled at that statement. It's like the man founded Turkey. And it's like, yes, he did. He absolutely did. Um, and he certainly did. wasn't a Greek speaker as, as his first language. So, you know, there's a brilliant photo of him dressed up as a janissary. And he said at one point in his political career, he said, we need to remind Europe that the Ottoman Empire planted its spear in the walls of Vienna. Uh, and so in a way, he's a little bit like Vladimir Putin because on, only it's happening in real time to Ataturk. Putin keeps talking about, in essence, the good old days. He keep, basically, more than anything else, Putin wants everybody to, to fear and respect Russia. And, and so he's terrified that people think that Russia's a joke now, which is one of the triggers for why he goes into Ukraine. And it obviously horribly backfires on him. And sadly, tens of thousands of people have died over this man's vision. But it's the same thing with, with Ataturk because, you know, he was a successful general in the Italian Ottoman war. He was, uh, he was a successful general at Gallipoli. He had earned his, um, you know, he'd earned his reputation by military means, but he had been involved in the Young Turk organization. He was aware that there needed to be political change in uh, in Turkey. And what this has led to, I'm going to fast forward now into the late 20th and early 21st century, that there is this very counterintuitive thing in Turkey. If I said to you, a Western European liberal and I said, what is a Western European's liberal relationship with the army? Well, if you're you know, liberal in Britain or liberal in America or liberal in, in Scandinavia, you're going to say, I would have issues with the military. I would be worried about military leadership. The military, well, def that's the literal definition of a fascist organization. No, thank you. I'm a liberal. Whereas in, in Turkey, a liberal will be pro-military. The military have carried out a number of coups over the 20th century, and their argument has always been this is all getting too Muslim. It's all become too um, hardcore, to use a, a term that they would never use. So we're going to intervene. We're going to get everybody to calm down with a military coup. You know, uh, soldiers on the streets. I remember once uh, traveling to Turkey as a child and seeing a tank next to the uh, next to the airport. They were clearly ready to go if anything happened. Um, but then once everything settled down, uh, they will then withdraw back to their barracks and democracy will return. Thank you very much. And if you like. The critical thing that Ataturk learnt from the Ottoman Empire is he saw how backwards the Ottoman Empire was by, let's say, 1920 compared to the rest of Europe. And he blamed Islam for it, which is why we have a republic of Turkey. And a republic will therefore have no official religion and it will have no, um, you know, obviously no king or monarch in charge of it. You know, he very much wanted to turn, uh, to turn the people of Anatolia's to the West. So this led to the fact that uh, there was no culture in the Ottoman Empire, or, and indeed in lots of places in Europe, of having a family name, a surname. You know, what is the name, you, the second name you put in your passport? And so once you know that, Ataturk, after, you know, he's, he is trying, so I've mentioned Syria, I've mentioned Greece, I've mentioned Armenia. These are all places that could kind of draw their borders on a map in the year 1500 because they these are places that had existed before kind of in the case of greece 
or Syria. Um, but there'd never been a country called Turkey before. So the weird thing is, you know, because it's got Istanbul as, uh, as its, well, sort of capital city, it's now the largest city in in the Republic of Turkey, but the, the actual capital city is, is Ankara, and that was moved by Ataturk because, A, he wanted it to be different to the Ottoman Empire, and B, he recognized from World War One if you've got your capital city right on the edge of your country, it's dangerous. Whereas uh, um, Ankara is, if you don't know where it is, that's almost the point it's right in the middle of anatolia so you've got to travel hundreds of miles to get anywhere near it and hopefully the the army can stop you before you get to the capital city which is i'm sure we're going to get onto the 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 greco-turkish war in a minute but um just before we do so ataturk's idea is picking up a little bit on what the ottoman argument was like you know muslims need to be together but he didn't pick islam as the glue he picked this idea of turkishness as as the glue and this because they had been called the young turks you know osman had been a turk so we got all this ancient references but there'd never been if in 1500 if you'd asked somebody in the ottoman empire to draw the the, the country of turkey on the map they would look at you like you're crazy they'd shrug it's like there's no such thing so the problem is that we've got the country of turkey being founded on this on all these old ideas but at the same time it is a completely new idea and so there is this strange relationship on the day of the anniversary 100th anniversary it's going to be very strange because on the one hand erdogan is almost like a little Putin. Erdogan loves going back to the Ottoman Empire, but the whole point of the Republic of Turkey is not to be the Ottoman Empire. So it, it's like Schrodinger's cat, only with Schrodinger's country. You know, is it an ancient country with ancient traditions or is it a new country with new traditions? And so when we come to this, um, to the last thing I'll say, and then Erlen, feel free to jump in with some questions. So one of the things that, that Ataturk wanted to make people do to be more Western is everybody had to have a family name, a surname. Um, and so once you know that, everybody's surname translates to something cool. You know, if you look at the footballers, you got so there was a famous footballer about 20 years ago called Bashturk. And if you translate it, it's number one Turk. Uh, you know, they're all called things like Mr. Lightning, Mrs. Standard Bearer, Mr. Lion. You know, nobody is called like Shufflebottom, which is a sort of slightly silly name in Britain. They've all got extremely cool surnames because they had to make them up. It also means that it, you can't tell just because I've got the same surname as you doesn't mean I we have the same family background as you. So, uh, but it's an example of how he is trying to forge from nothing something. I will now be quiet. Um, and then, and then I want to add to that, that when you talked about Mustafa Kemal being well, not what didn't shy away from Islam and the religion. There was a biographer that argued that. In, and several people, I think, have said this as well. If he could have, and if he was allowed to, he would have very much have made himself sultan and made himself the new sultan of Turkey, if you will. I dispute that. I, I mean, the thing is, though, you never know what happens in people's minds. and You can only talk about what actually happened. But I, I would say that the way he was trying to rebuild stuff, he obviously wanted to be in charge. But clearly, the idea of a sultan was over. Um, so I, I, you know, it's an interesting conversation and, you know, maybe I will talk to talk on, on Twitter or something about that, 
Um, but but yeah, so the the after World War One, uh, we then get the carving up of the Middle East. Some of these countries have existed before, like Syria, and some of these countries are completely new, like Kuwait. Uh, so uh, you know, it's 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 a problem. And and uh, as you said earlier. It is just Westerners drawing lines on, on the desert. It's like, okay, Iraq stops there. Jordan starts there. Bang, off we go. Jordan, that was well, a place why that Africa have so many straight lines and squares? Yeah, in exactly. Europe, it's the problem. It's the problem. Britain, France, and Germany just drawing lines. Okay, you're, you're going here. You're going there. You get this place up, up here. We get the button, button down here. Yeah, yeah. But if you like, in Europe, at least because it was done by Europeans, there's some vague logic to it. Like, who's got Alsace? Who's got Silesia? I always love that name. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, here, like like you said, with Africa, it's just people drawing lines on a map. And and if you like, so that happened 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago. And we're still seeing the problems of it today. Um, you know, we could be talking about wars in Iraq. We could be talking about, uh, you know, uh, Israel, Palestine. We could be talking about Hez- that today. Yeah, exactly. We could talk about Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. So the point, the you know, so when people criticize the Ottoman Empire, I'm not saying that it was a nirvana. I'm not saying that they got it right. But when you look at how much violence has happened in the Middle East, but then you look at the previous 300 years, there's hardly anything. Uh, again, I'm not saying the Ottomans were a uh, beautifully efficient and liberal organization, but at least they kept the peace. At least there weren't massacres going on, uh, you know, all the time in places. Uh, and so, you know, it's it, it's it's quite telling. But meanwhile, with Ataturk, he 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 doesn't care about Syria. It's just not his thing to worry about. Uh, pretty much as soon as we get the Republic of Turkey being I- introduced as a concept, because even the Westerners realize the Muslims have to live somewhere. But as soon as it's 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 kind of on the map, Greece wants to go for it. And Greece, uh, you know, it's expanded. It's now uh, at the same size as it is today. But, uh, you know, cur- courtesy of World War One. But, you know, what the Greeks are telling the Europeans is like, oh, you know, this is the Hellenic Empire. You remember we invented democracy and philosophy and Pythagoras's theorem and all this. And everyone loves this in the West. But actually, the way it was sold in Greece was we're rebuilding the Byzantine Empire. You know, we're, we're going to we're going to grab as much Anatolia as possible. You know, the Ottomans are completely exhausted. There's no such thing as the Turkish army. It's the Ottoman Empire uh, army. You know, it's it, it's a mess. And in every possible way, Greece should have won. Greece was given weapons from France and Britain. You know, they were motivated. They had the the the, the, the best equipment in the world at that time, which had just been battle proven. Uh, and indeed, to begin with, they start pushing Ataturk and his forces back. But he, but Ataturk realizes that Anatolia, central Anatolia, is a desert. So if he keeps going back and back, all that's happening from the Greek version, uh, Greek side of things, is their supply chain is getting longer and longer, and they're further and further into enemy territory. Nobody in central uh, Anatolia considers themselves Greek. You know, maybe the people in Smyrna. Uh, but not in in, uh, in in central Anatolia, uh, and so you get the Battle of uh, Dumlipinar, and uh, Dumlipinar is in central uh, Anatolia. It's about three days, and it was a lot of it was actually an artillery duel. But fundamentally, the Greeks realized, "Oh my God, we either win this 
or we've got like 500 miles to, to retreat and we're going to have to leave all our heavy equipment. And that's what happens. The Turks just stop retreating. They just take the punishment and then start moving forwards. And at that point, the Greeks, the Greek uh, army collapses. And of course, all their heavy equipment, including their artillery, can now be used by the, the Turkish forces, this new force. And so the, the Ottoman forces had been battle-hardened, but now they're Turkish forces. And Mustafa Kemal, this is the last time he is, you know, so he ends up fighting in about four different wars, but this is the last time he is a general. And and pretty much as soon as this war with Greece is declared, it is sort of like agreed, peace is declared, he never again puts on a military uniform and he becomes a reforming politician. And so when people turn around and say, ah, Ottoman Empire, Republic of Turkey, they're the same thing. Well, the Ottoman Empire's capital city was Istanbul in Europe. Turkey's capital is Ankara in uh, in Asia Minor, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, if you look at Ottoman Turkish, it's written in the Arab alphabet. It is now written in the Latin alphabet. Turkish, by the way, is 100% phonetic. So if you know what the letters mean, there are no tricks to it, unlike English, which there are always tricks to how you pronounce stuff in English. So it is deliberately changing everywhere. There are, uh, it is estimated about 5,000 like uh, Muslim uh, scholars and, uh, you know, some people might use the term fanatics that, that refuse to sort of adapt to the secular world that are killed, executed. You know, which people say, there you go, there's the blood on the hands of Ataturk. And it's like, okay, but compare it to the Russian Revolution, French Revolution, American Revolution. This is an incredibly bloodless change of a complete system. You know, we are moving towards, you know, Ataturk was a dictator, but he was moving towards democracy. And he, you know, after this, he fought no wars of aggression whatsoever. He wanted to put all his efforts into founding a country that actually had a chance of survival. And when you look at Turkey in the Republic of Turkey in 1923, uh, you would think "Mm, maybe it survives, maybe it doesn't. And certainly when you compare it to the rest of the Middle East, it hasn't been invaded nearly as often. There hasn't been nearly as much um, violence. Upsets, violence, disruption uh, compared to other countries, Iran, Iraq, uh, you know, Afghanistan. Well, I mean, that's not the Middle East, but, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, Syria, etc. There just there was never a civil war. You know, probably the closest thing is the fight with the PKK. This is the uh, the Kurdish people in the east. Um, The Kurds are the largest population in the world, ethnic population in the world who have no home nation of their own. They're spread between modern day Syria, Iraq, Turkey and Iran. I don't know if they'll ever get a home nation. But what's interesting is under the Ottoman Empire, the Kurds were extremely loyal fighters. Again, with the Republic of Turkey, they're fighting against that that army. So that's another big difference politically between the Republic of Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. I will, again, allow you to ask a question or, or lead to a wrap-up, because I know we've been talking for a um, while. I actually we're not going to wrap-up yet, because we've been doing some few things, like the Turkish War of Independence, which I want to talk about, but I also want to talk about the fact that after World War One, as far as I remember, if I remember correctly, Turkey never really made peace with Britain after immediately after, but they were still. So it was a phony war in a sense. They didn't really have peace, and I wanted 
talk a little bit before we go into the war, to, Turkish War of Independence. I want to talk about the Treaty of Lausanne. Yeah, okay, fine, fine. Well, look, for, first of all, how do you see it from your perspective? What do you mean? Elaborate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm asking you to elaborate. Well, you know, what do you think the point of the treaty was? Hmm. To be honest, I don't remember much of it, so I can't say that's what I was hoping you would oh, okay, talk about it because I, I don't remember much of it. Much yeah, of it. So, I'm so afraid the, 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 that's not, I'm not talking a bit about what, how, how it came to be and what. Yeah, so so the the best way to look at it is it was the first attempt at a Treaty of Versailles for the for the Ottoman Empire. But things were changing so fast on the ground, it became redundant pretty much as soon as it was being discussed. Um, And of course, the other problem is who are we discussing it with? You know, is it the three Pashas government? Is it the Sultan's government? Is it the new sort of Ataturk government? Yeah, we, we sort of like rising power. It's sort of like who gets to, do, to talk to us? So it was, I think the simplest way to say it is it was a starting point. But as you quite rightly said, there was a phony war. There were literally British soldiers based in Istanbul. In 1922, when Mehmet VI, um, was was sort of like officially deposed as the sultan. I mean, let's face it, he kind of wasn't a sultan of anything at that point, um, but he was asked to leave. He mo- moved to Malta. Um, it was the British who got involved in all of this. It was the British who transported him on a, um, on a, uh, what's I going to say? Uh, an Sorry, this seemed to be a little bit... Um... Problem with the Wi-Fi from my guest right now. I'm trying to work on it because he fell out right now, and uh, we'll be right back. I'm sorry about this little disturbance. Um, we'll be right back. I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry about the little confusion right now. We're very accidental death to see. Zoom call, so let's let's carry on from this. The text call, you know, yeah, the technical issue. issue sorry about that. Uh, what can I say? I'm very popular. But anyway, yeah, so we were talking about, you know, the British were involved in literally extracting the last Ottoman Empire out of his technical capital city, although it wasn't that anymore. And so it just shows you that, you know, the British influence is already there. Britain's already moving into places like Saudi Arabia, which again had never existed as a country. And Saudi Arabia, Saud, the House of Saud is a dynasty. Um, And just briefly, to show you and to reinforce how hard the Ottoman Empire fought in World War One, they were reduced to dealing with a fifth column, basically revolutionaries within the Ottoman Empire. In this case, uh, we're talking about the Saudi Arab groups, um, you know, and you get Lawrence of Arabia out of all of that. But they, you know, so you have the British promising the Arabs that they're going to get, uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem. You, they're promising the Jews that they're going to get Jerusalem. They're promising the Brits. They, you know, so it, it's just, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Lines are drawn everywhere. Different groups are disenfranchised almost immediately. Um, and the, the the situation on the ground is changing all the time as well. Um, you know, there was a famous uh, quote that uh, Ataturk at one point said that, you know, um, if the British don't do something about the evacuation of Smyrna nowadays, 
nowadays modern Izmir, um, you know, that his forces will be will will move into the direction. And then somebody said off the record to Ataturk, it's like, you know, how many men do you have in the region? And he said, I don't know. You know, we have soldiers all over the place, but it just sounds good. If you sound like you're in charge in these periods of complete power vacuum, then you end up getting to be in charge. So, yeah. So when it comes to the treaties, all of them and sort of finishing in Sevres is is, is the final one that ratifies everything. But even then, that that was being signed whilst the war with Greece was still going on. So in theory, the Greeks could have pushed back, could have changed the borders again. But in the end... Uh, you know, Ataturk was able to actually win the day. So, I want to point out that if you look at the, take a look at the map of the Ottoman Empire before the World War One, and then Drew Drew 2022. So, not 2022, but 1922. It's tiny. It's really tiny. Just green little spots on yeah. the map that is the, the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire or Turkey. It's, Almost nothing. So it's incredible how Ataturk managed to create what we know as Turkey today. From which, as I says, again, as I said, it's just a tiny little spot on the map. Look it up on the phone if you've got the time. But still, it's incredible how we managed to for to give take to bring Turkey back to the world, what we know it as today. Yeah, I, mean, I would put it as uh, it's nation building akin to what uh, George Washington and the founding fathers had to do. You know, they might have won a war, uh, but they're now dirt poor. And, uh, you know, there's all this other stuff going on around them, uh, you know, bigger powers around them. It's the same thing with Ataturk, but we're talking about the 1920s. Um, and another example of the difference between the Ottoman era and the, uh, the new Republic uh, of Turkey is you know, the culture changed so much. So, you know, my name is Jem Daduchu. That is a Turkish name. Although Jem was an Ottoman prince and Daduchu was a name in the Ottoman court. So even to Turks, Daduchu is an unusual surname because they're expecting me to be called like Yildirim or something like that. Um, you know, a far more obvious name in Turkish. So they recognize it as being of Turkic origins, but think it might come from a different country. But, um, so my grandparents, my, on my father's side, they were born during the Ottoman Empire. And so I have visited their graves and the year of their birth is done in the Islamic calendar, which is about 600 years behind the Christian one. But their deaths, which was in the 1980s, was done in the Christian calendar, in the Georgian calendar, which is what Turkey uses today. Again, another deliberate step away from the Islamic side of things. But what it means is in this uh, in this cemetery, there are hundreds of people like my grandparents who seem to have been born round about 1300 and died in like 1988. And it's sort of like they- quite well. Yeah, they, they, yeah, 700 years they seem to have lived. But so it's just, it just shows you, I think those tombstones show you the shock to the system that happened and how much Ataturk had to change. Hmm. Let's, we don't wrap it up. So then let's talk briefly about that. And I want to talk about some changes as we managed to talk about some of them, but I didn't. Among others, changes done after the Turkish War of Independence as well. But I want to talk a little bit about the Turkish War of Independence as well. As we, we talked about the recapture of 
of Smyrna under the new capture, but there was an, as well an in kind of civil war, I would say, it was the Turkish, I would call it kind of a civil war, the Turkish War of Independence. Yeah, so I mean, th- this was the ultimate uh, stamp of authority. You know, by then, Ataturk now knows what he's doing. Uh, you know, he, he the forces have seen a winner. He's the one who's been able to come up with the actual plan. So I'm going to say at that point, there are other people arguing, and we do get things like a reduction of um, uh, of freedom of press, but it's also coming from a period of like, you know, war and a dictatorship. So the press wasn't that free to begin with. Uh, so, you know, at that point, if anybody wants to stand against Ataturk, it's it's basically doomed. Uh, you know, he's done all the hard work. The average person in the street knows who he is and sees that he's going in the right direction. And so if anybody else is trying to make a move, it's just a power play. It's a, again, if you want a comparison, and it was a sort of like pretty much a sequential comparison to the Russian Civil War, we may know that the, you know, the Soviet Union had lots of problems and led to lots of deaths. But the problem with the white side is well, you're just backing a dead regime. There's there's nothing to be said here. The czars are dead. They were also corrupt as hell and the system didn't work. Why are we fighting for you? And in the in the Russian Civil War, there was also the Greens, which was the peasant armies that didn't want to be involved with any of those sides or the, the black side, which were the anarchists in quite often in the cities. So you've got four different sides fighting and one of them, ju- it just has the momentum. It's got the organization. It just steamrolls everybody. I would compare that favorably to what's going on with Ataturk and the the War of Independence. But again, how much of this is going to be given um, coverage in in Turkey? Because there is this feeling that once you're, I mean, literally the motto of the country, there is no greater feeling than to be a Turk. And 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 this is the thing. But your background, your DNA, my I've done my DNA test. I'm basically on my father's side. It is a mixture of Arab and uh, uh, Balkans, You probably Bulgarian. And that makes complete sense because the family was based in Bulgaria. And why wouldn't they breed with, with Arabs sort of like during the 500 years of, of occupation in that, in that area? But we don't have any Turk in us. And so today, so my, when I told my father my DNA results, he was shocked he was like, how can I not be Turkish? I'm Turkish. Uh, he, the man would cut his arms to bleed to make the red in tur- the Turkish flag red. OK, so th- this is the thing, you know, the actual Turks, actual Osman. He was a Turk in the literal biological DNA sense of it. But today it is a political idea. And so you get places like Turkey backing other Turkic groups like Azerbaijan against Armenia. We've just had a brief war in Nagorno-Karabakh in in, in Azerbaijan. And their allies is Turkey. Armenia's ally is Russia. And Russia's rather busy in Ukraine at the moment. So you have these echoes of these political decisions from a century ago dealing with current affairs people still dying about this a century later and that's the best sort of like summary i can give you so let's talk a little bit about your family. You mentioned some that surnames was a thing and i want to talk about Patrick's family in this as well and bring up that he did never had any kids with for for himself he adopted a few daughters Yes, and his marriage did not end very well, but then he did not allow his daughters. This is what I found fascinating, or his nearest family to be called Kemal. Like that was his name 
and the Chinese died with him. I don't think we have any Kemal's in Turkey today because he didn't allow his adopted daughters or nearest family to have Kemal, for example. But I want something I want to talk about, and Andrew Mango pointed this out at the end of his biography of Ataturk as well, that for average peasants, perhaps not much changed from going from Ottoman to Turkic, being a Turkic Republic, but gradually it would change. But it didn't, at least the first decades, perhaps it still was a fairly slow process for mostly it was the elite that would feel a change. But again, it kind of goes with the analogy when the Christianity came to Europe, it was most started with the elites and then went down to, you know, the press bottom peasants. I would say that kind of the same thing was the case with the Turkish reforms that Ataturk did. It started at an elite and then it went slowly down to the peasants eventually. See, I, I, I know what he means. And I mean, yeah, I mean, well, with any of us, whenever there's like an election in your country, how much actually changes between the day before and the day after? Mm-hmm. So I do take that point, you know, but I would say that it was a bigger change than most. I mean, certainly moving from one sultan to another, no difference. But here, I mean, so to, to, like I said, you know, you might have been wearing a fez. You would have had people coming around and saying, take that off now. We're not allowed to wear them anymore. So, okay. Fair so, I mean, that changes the fashion of the time. My father remembers in 1953 having a band come round to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the siege of Constantinople and the success of the Ottoman Empire. But also, uh, I remember as a small child, I would go to like markets in Turkey, uh, in my sort of the hometown. And I saw people sitting on the, I mean, there are people selling fruit and vegetables and meat and all this kind of, all that usual stuff. But there were people with typewriters at the edge of of the marketplace. And I said to my mother, why are there people sitting there with, with uh, typewriters? And the answer was there was still a generation that had only been given a rudimentary um, education, but they'd be given an Ottoman education. So again, they could read and write with the Arabic script. They couldn't read or write the Latin script and they didn't have time to learn it. So, you know, literally there was a cottage industry of people having to translate stuff into the new version of the language. So I would say that compared to other changes, it was actually quite big for the peasant in uh, a peasant in the field. But I do get the point that, you know, who's in charge of the government? I still have to bring the crops in. I, 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 I hear you on that. And as well, and you mentioned the scripture that it's changed from Arabic to the Latin alphabet. But and that let's talk about literacy for a second, because the literacy didn't rise with the new generation of Turks. When whereas mainly again the elite, it was the elite who spoke and wrote Arabic because it's quite difficult to learn if you are not. It's they take quite quite a while to learn it. Learn. From what I understand, and um, the literacy in Turkey was quite high under Ottoman Empire, but when it came to Turkey, and when they changed to the Latin alphabet, at least the younger generation generation became more literate. Absolutely. And of course, it allowed them to learn other European languages more easily because they could now finally guess what the sounds were of the of the letters in like a French newspaper or something. So, uh uh, I absolutely agreed. Um, but the other big difference was how m- much it affected women. Suddenly they didn't have to wear the veil. 
that was now open to go to university. Uh, and I, I love this fact. The very first ever qualified fighter pilot in the world that was female was from the, for the Turkish Air Force. Uh, oh, that was Safa Kemal's adopted daughter. Is one of it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, which absolutely fitted into his ethos of modernism, modernity. So, you know, there was this constant push. So, you know, so, you know, he, pretty much anything Ottoman instantly became bad, which is why, you know, my parents, they couldn't understand. They could buy all these really cheap Ottoman clothing and stuff like that back in the 1960s, because to everybody, it's like nobody wants this stuff. Everybody wants to be new and modern and Western European. So my parents made a small fortune buying all this stuff that in the 1960s was junk, but by the 1990s was sort of highly sought after because it had all been thrown away. And I want to point out as well, you mentioned the banning of the fest and there is this account of European visitors because they didn't really use another half of the fest that they were some Turks would just because it was to wear a hat, would wear women some braids or very ludicrous hats that they just needed a hat and there were Europeans that were amused of men wearing, you know, women's hats or women's, you know. So there were awesome amusing stories about hat stories out there after the change. Absolutely, yes. And what's interesting is when you go around Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, you, you see these little nooks all the places. And I ask, what are they for? And it's like, to take your turban off and the place to put your turban. It's like, ah, right, okay, makes complete sense. With, with the turban gone, and obviously, you know, everybody's still Muslim, but they're, or, you know, 99% of them are Muslim. But, you know, being Muslim, being outwardly Muslim was not the big deal it once was. And indeed, I would argue before Erdogan, I've heard some Islamic scholars saying that Islam needs their version of the Reformation. If it's almost like, you know, it, it's been the same amount of time between the Prophet Muhammad, peace be, above, uh, be, be upon him, and the uh, and now as it was between the you know the writing of the Bible and uh, Martin Luther uh, starting the Reformation. And I would say that because it's not an Islamic government, it's a secular government prior to Erdogan, that that. Turkey would be the country that's most primed to have a kind of Protestant reformation for the Islamic world because they are, you know, it, it's, it is a law based on Roman law, not on Sharia law or anything like that. You know, people get it still getting their hands cut off in Saudi Arabia. In Turkey, you would go to prison. Um, but, you know, Erdogan has changed all of this. We're now getting to the point where, again, when I was a little kid, there were still people alive who remembered Ataturk, who saw him in the flesh. Nobody's really alive that does that now. Um, and so Erdogan has tried to create this cult of personality for himself. Um, in the Ottoman era, if you're a particularly successful sultan, you would build a massive mosque in uh, Istanbul, Constantinople then. Um, but uh, uh, um, Erdogan has now done that for himself. And whatever you may think of, you know, whoever's listening to this, whichever country you're in, you may hate your your leader, your president or prime minister. But no matter how much you hate them, you'd probably sit there and go, they wouldn't. If they turn around to the country and saying, I'm building a massive church in my name, on the, you know, they'd instantly lose power. Nobody would take them seriously. But that's what Erdogan's doing. So Erdogan is trying to bring back the glory days of the Ottoman Empire, but he's doing it in a part that wasn't 
you know, it's so much more than just the Ottoman Empire. You know, if you look at the history of Turkey, it's been, or, or Anatolia, it's been a crossroads. It's been part of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, um, you know, the Hittite Empire. Uh, the, the Crusaders marched through there. You know, the Tamerlane was there. The Mongols, were, so many different things happened. You know, just, just only seeing it through the lens of the Ottoman Empire is not doing uh, a service to the huge culture and variety and history and archaeology of Anatolia. I think I'm done. I don't think I can do better than that. I want to, I want to end on, you know, this part about how the Ottomans were bad and, you know, Turkey, new Turkey good. But I want to end with today and in 2023 and the last decade because it seems to be a revival of Ottoman history in Turkey because as 100% er- Aragon, and we see in media as well, there is a lot of t- TV shows and movies set in the Ottoman Empire. You've got Erzbrug about Osman's father. You've got a series of all sultans about Abdullah II. You have the series This Magnificent Century about Simon and the Magnificent. So there seems to be kind of a re- like it's uh, nostalgic for the Ottoman Empire that's starting to be revived in Turkey again. And maybe it's because of Erdogan, I don't know, but probably, but has something to do with it. But still, there seems to be, like we talked about, a new revival of Ottoman and to nostalgia. I would agree with that. I think that you need to put that into the context of all these countries that have, you know, basically had a bad 20th century that are now, um, you know, finding... Yeah, exactly. So, so things like China. Okay, you know, if you watch a Chinese movie, some of them can be beautiful, and the, like the fight choreography can be amazing, but the message is China's better than every other country. And it's like if America did that, you and know, it, 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 it'd be, they, it would be it would be absolutely slammed, you know, as propaganda. But but because it's Chinese, it's fine. Same thing with India. India's rewriting its history. You know, apparently no Muslims were involved in the history of, of India. It's like, you do know what's on the Taj Mahal. It's got literally Islamic calligraphy up the side of it, okay? The Mughals were Mongol uh, and, and Muslim. So, uh, you know, so... You know, you and, and same thing with Russia as well. So you've got these countries, and and it's the same thing with Turkey. They're going back to the stuff that makes them look awesome. Whereas you get places like you know Britain, and I'm proud of the fact that we are very anxious about our imperial past. I, I think there's a lot of people in Britain that thinks the British Empire is almost as bad as you know, sort of like you know, war crimes. And it's as always, it's more complicated than that. But you just in Britain, you would not just get a, a, a uh, a movie where the the hero is a British imperialist killing all the locals, and there's no context to it whatsoever. It's just like British is good, you know. People with a, uh, a different skin color are bad. It wouldn't be made. It would be too controversial. It would be seen as racist. But in Turkey, China, India, so long as you're backing the country, you can be as racist as you want against other people. It's fine because our history is awesome. And I think we're gonna end it on that note. <laughs> end on racism. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. But uh, I think the people understand the message. I hope. But uh, if you're cancelled, that's it was nice to meet you. <laughs> but uh, but uh, before we go, of course, do you have anything you want to talk about and and in social media and X or whatever it's called these days? Or where can people buy your book if they want to read? about the Ottoman Empire, which is a great introduction to the Ottomans. Thank you very much for that. Always a pleasure.
I'm not going to, I'm, I want to end with being available on Twitter, on X, social, on, and on that age 12. You can find us on Instagram, for that age 12. Spotify, we are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a review of us. That would be a great gem. I've done that and I would recommend everyone else to do the same. If you are on Spotify, give us five stars. That would help us out a lot. If you are on YouTube, please like, share, and subscribe. Check out some other episodes. We have we all have some great episodes and great upcoming episodes as well. You, I would highly recommend checking out our previous episode on the. It's a two-parter parter on the Ottoman Sultans. And um, my name is Alan, and I'll see you next time.